Ring in the new year with a wonderfully clean house. It might be a mess after the holidays, but I have got the answer for you. Our wonderful sponsor, Nature Clean. They've been making chemical-free cleaning products and personal care products since 1963. Their ingredients are naturally derived from plants and minerals, and they are effective yet environmentally friendly. You get that wonderful clean that is good for the environment. They are approved by the USDA as being bio-based products, and all of their products are vegan and not tested on animals. For more information, information, visit them online at natureclean.ca. New to the living healthy lifestyle or a healthy living veteran, this is your place for honest answers. Naturally Savvy with registered holistic nutritionist Andrea Donsky and health journalist Lisa Davis. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Naturally Savvy Radio. My co-host Andrea is away today. I love talking about mental health issues on the program. I have a book called Easy to Love But Hard to Live With. It's about people with brain-based disorders. This is people who have things that you can't see by looking at them, whether it be mental health issues, mental illnesses, autism, ADHD, dyslexia. And this is something that I have been talking about for a very long time. My grandmother was bipolar. And so at a young age, I knew that there was physical illnesses because my mom had a lot of knee surgeries that were botched and she suffered with physical illnesses. And then I knew that my Grammy had mental illnesses and I didn't see that as being this huge thing until you get older and then there's stigma all over the place around mental illness, which is such a shame. The woman joining us today is here. She is just absolutely being absolutely incredible. She helps to fight that stigma, talks about the importance of really looking at physical and mental illnesses the same way. Her name is Christy Hugstad. Her book, Beneath the Surface, A Teen's Guide to Reaching Out When You or a Friend is in Crisis. Before I bring her in, I just want to say this book is for everybody, not just teens. Hello, Christy. Welcome to the show. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, that was a long intro. They're usually really short, but it's just something <laughs> that is always bothered me as well, that there's this stigma attached. So I know for you, uh, you, and I'm so sorry that you lost your husband to suicide, and you talk about not wanting to see the mental illness. You felt that stigma. Talk to us about that and about that experience. Well, you know, initially, I kind of just thought it was my husband that bought into the stigma. And he never reached out for help. He never really owned, you know, the fact that he had major depressive disorder. And, you know, so my whole thing was trying to get him help, right, to fix him and get my husband back to the man that I married. But now in hindsight, looking back, the reason I was so, I really wasn't listening. I was just trying to fix him because I too didn't want him to have a mental illness. I too bought into that stigma and that shame and that guilt. And I didn't want him to be that person that was sick and needed help. So I kind of put blinders on myself. And it took me a while after his suicide to realize, you know what? I didn't want to own it either. It wasn't just my husband, Bill. It was also me that was buying into that stigma. And you know what? Until it happens to you and until it affects you personally, you are not prepared. You know, it's we all have basic first aid skills if there's something physically that goes wrong, right? I mean, we know what to do when we break our leg. We don't crawl into bed and hope that it gets better by itself. We get medical attention. But we as a society do not know how to deal with mental illness. And the problem with that stigma 
and buying into it is, you know what, these people need help. If they're suffering from a mental illness, they need help because their lives are in danger. So my goal and my mission right now is to break down those barriers and get rid of that stigma so the people that need help will feel free to reach out just like they would if they had something physically wrong with them. Before we move into the book in terms of looking at teens, I just want to focus a little bit more about what were some of the things that you saw in your husband that you say, oh my God, I didn't realize that was, those were like cries for help or that there was suicidal ideation or that this was something he was thinking about. Well, all of the warning signs and risk factors that I address and talk about extensively in my book were there. My husband, Bill, was a poster child for mental illness. He was very withdrawn. Um, he was isolating. He didn't want to engage in activities that he used once he once used to enjoy. He could barely get out of bed to go to work and, and train one or two clients. So I like to tell people that really want a summary of what those warning signs are is just think of it as your loved one becomes so someone you no longer recognize. And I remember at one point thinking to myself, who are you? I don't know you at all. You have become somebody that I no longer know. And I want my old husband back. So, you know, risk factors too, is there a genetic component? You were talking about that earlier. Take a look at your Take a look at your family history. Are there uh, signs of depression and mental illness, bipolar disorders? Do those exist in your genetics? So there is that component of family history that's so important to recognize. Is there a prior attempt? Bill had a prior attempt, and that is a huge risk factor. So, you know, for teens, are they skipping school? Are there, Are their grades declining? Do they have a change of friends? Um, are they not engaged in drama or basketball or sports or things that they used they once used to enjoy? So I will own the fact that all of those risk factors and warning signs were right in front of me. But when you're in it, all you're trying to do is survive and get them help. And I will own the fact that I really didn't think that he would take his life. I'd heard you in an interview talking about that when he took, I think he he told you he took a bottle of Ambien and then when he did it, what was what's it called? A 50 something hold? Right. A 5150, which is a three-day involuntary suicide watch. So when a person is at risk for harming themselves or others, they can be put on a three-day involuntary suicide watch where basically you are supervised 24 seven and, you know, they keep you safe. Um, but at that time when he'd left me a suicide note and told me that he'd taken that entire bottle of Ambien, I wasn't sure if he'd actually taken them or if it was just a cry for help. But at that time I was so scared that I thought I just need him to be safe. And then I thought once I got him to the hospital, he would get the treatment that he needed. And that didn't happen. The doc, he had told the doctor that, no, no, he just really needed to sleep. And then they believed him. Exactly. Did you feel betrayed? Our, absolutely. You know what? Our mental health system is so broken and so, so inadequate. He should have gotten a bed in that hospital and started treatment. 
But instead, as an adult, you know, they couldn't hold him after a certain point. And when he said, no, I wasn't trying to take my own life. I just couldn't sleep. They released him. And then we were back to square one. And it was three weeks later that he took his life. Yes. So sorry. Yes. Thank you. You know, one of the things in the book uh, is substance abuse. And you have all these, uh, the book is so great. We're going to go through all the different things. Well, we're not going through all of them because I want people to read the book, but there's self-harm, there's anxiety, there's eating disorders. When I was growing up, um, there was someone very close to me who I did not know was being sexually abused by our neighbor. And when she was 13, she started smoking pot and I flipped out. I was like, don't smoke pot. And she smoked pot morning, noon, night. I was so mad and I would just get on her case about it. And I, as an adult, when she told me what happened, I thought, oh my God, I feel terrible. I think there are some things where there is trauma, not just depression, right? That trauma that kids are trying to mask the pain of. Oh, of course. There anybody that has experienced emotional, physical, sexual abuse is going to have some trauma. And that's exactly why they are turning to drugs and alcohol. They want to numb that emotional pain because they don't know how to process it. They don't have the tools to be able to deal with it. A lot of times our youth feels like, well, I had it coming. It was my fault. What did I do? Why wasn't I loved? So there's guilt and there's shame involved. And that's oftentimes why they engage in self-harm. They're just trying to feel. And that's why they're smoking pot and this, you know, or doing meth or heroin or whatever their drug of choice is, is they're trying to escape that traumatic experience that they have no tools and have not been taught how to cope with. Well, what's so great about your book is that you know, in the title, A Teen's Guide to Reaching Out When You or Your Friend is in Crisis. See, if I had this book back then or if I had known, I might have said, hey, you're smoking pot, like you're stoned 24-7. What's going on? Well, and the the message in the book is when you are concerned about your peers as you were, what I'm telling you is you can be there as a friend and be supportive and listen and let them know that you're in this with them for the long haul. But the most important thing you can do, even if they swear you to secrecy, that's not the time to honor that secret. You need to tell an adult you trust immediately, whether it's your parent, their parent, a school teacher, counselor, administrator, somebody at church, your aunt, your uncle, somebody that you trust so that your peer can get the help they need. And yeah, you know, I get that it, that their friend that the person going to that adult is going to feel like they're retain, betraying their friend, but you know what? In the long run, your peer will thank you for reaching out and getting them help because potentially you could have saved their life. Oh, completely. I mean, it's so hard for a teen's brain to wrap around that because you think I can't betray my friend, I, you know, and that's why your book is so important because we have to be able to talk to our teens and say, look, you can betray your friend if it's life or death. And that's what we're talking about here. Absolutely. And the hard thing is that in, you know, the, the, the life of a teen is all about their peers and they're the like generation. And am I being accepted? And, and, and am I getting approval and likes on Snapchat and Instagram? And so to actually think of betraying your friend, that's a really tough thing for a, a teen to do. 
Yeah, it really is. And that acceptance thing is tough. And I mean, I just feel, I, I feel badly for this generation because when I was, when we were teens, there was no internet and Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff. And now, and whatever that I don't keep up, but <laughs> it's just, I mean, and I have a 15 year old daughter and I'm glad she's not into it. She doesn't like any of it. And I'm so grateful oh, because you I are just, so lucky. yeah, I just think she just likes to make goofy videos and stuff on her own. And I'm like, why don't you use TikTok? Or I guess I do know a little like her friend. She's like, no, I don't really like that. But anyway, so I'm glad because there's just so much pressure. And then there's a cyber bullying. Like I was bullied, but when I got home, I shut the front door and then that was it. But now it, it just continues. And there's, I feel like there's just way too much stuff thrown at our kids nowadays. Well, the problem is that they really don't have a safe place. You know, like you said, you were bullied. I was bullied too as a ninth grader, but at least when I got home, I had a safe space. So I got a break and I could decompress and I could try to process what was going on. But for our kids now, when they get home, if they're being bullied at school, the bullying actually picks up when they get home through the cyberbullying because now everybody has time to get online and to be anonymous and to get out their anger and frustration with other, you know, take it out on their peers. So it's actually worse. So the, the really scary thing for our youth right uh, growing up today is where is their safe place? And I think we as adults need to help create that for them. Oh, yeah, we definitely do. I mean, my house was kind of nutty, so it wasn't really that. I mean, it was it's hard, too, because I always felt like, God, I get out in the world and it sucks. I go come into the, come home. It's a drag. <laughs> so I've done everything to make it a safe haven for my daughter. I mean, I think it, it's so important. And, you know, the more you can learn about your own past and work through your own trauma and work on yourself, I think the better parent you're going to be. Oh, yes. And the fact that she isn't interested in comparing herself to her peers or engaging in social media, that is really, really unusual. So yeah. <laughs> good for you and good for her. <laughs> yeah, she's a unique gal. Uh, let's talk a little bit about suicide. I, I, it's so hard. People just don't want to talk about it. I remember I heard you on an interview saying that you'd see people at the store. You, you can see they would see you, but they would like go to a different aisle because they just don't know how to talk about it. And one of the things that you hear is that they don't necessarily want to die. They just don't want to feel the way that they're feeling right now anymore. And you say in the book, most teens after making a suicide attempt say that they did it to escape right from a situation that seemed impossible to deal with or get rid of or to get relief from bad thoughts or feelings. Uh, you share some stories from several teens in those situations, which I think is really good. And then you share some myths. One of them is teens who threaten to com complete suicide are just looking for attention. That makes me so mad. And it's so dangerous to think that way. Well, and you know what? Had There was a part of me when my husband was distributing all these warning signs of suicide. There was a part of me that wondered, are you, is this real? Or are you just trying to get an, are you just trying to get attention? And, you know, a lot of things were changing in our lives and he was going through kind of an identity crisis. So when I look back to dismiss that as an attention getting tactic, I mean, he, he, he followed through on his suicide plan and he is no longer here. So isn't it better to act and get that person help 
no matter what you might think in the back of your head. Is this a cry for attention? Well, even if it is a cry for attention, they still need help, right? So either way, we need to address the situation and get people help. Another myth is asking teens if they've had thoughts about suicide increases their risks. Well, that's absolutely false. Asking teens or adults or anybody direct questions, it can be life-saving. Do you have a plan? Have you thought about taking your own life? You know, if they respond, if they're more indirect and say, you know, I just don't want to be here anymore. I just don't want to live with this emotional pain. That when you ask those direct questions, it opens the lines of communication for them to say, yes, I do have a plan. I don't want to be here anymore. I'm emotionally overwhelmed and I can't take it. I just want out. So without asking questions to have those discussions, you know, your, your, your child or the, your loved one that you're speaking to can go off on their own and carry through on their plan. So yes, that is a, a huge myth. Another one is uh, suicide is selfish. <laughs> yeah. And I got that a lot after Bill's suicide. It was a lot of his friends and clients were so angry because my husband ran in front of a train and his father was a passenger on the train and his father was 80 years old, right? And everybody's reaction was, how could Bill do that to his father? How could Bill do that to his wife, his mother, his family? And what people don't understand is when you are at a place in your emotional distress where all you want is to end that pain, you actually think that all of your loved ones will be better off without you and that you're a burden. So it's so far from being selfish, it's the other end of the spectrum where they actually feel like they're a burden and they think that the world and their family will be better off without them. So that is the exact opposite of a selfish act. Well, when I discovered through reading and hearing you on interviews that Bill, you know, jumped in front of the train that his father was on, I have to say I did, I didn't think selfish, but I wondered, was there some kind of dark abuse or something? Because it seemed, I don't know, maybe I'm not thinking clearly, but that's the first thing I thought was, oh my God, was he mad at his dad? Because I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't think that's an odd thing to think. I mean, do you? Not at all. I, I think that myself included, that's the first place where your brain's going to go. Was he, was he trying to punish his dad? What happened as a child or as an adult that he had that much anger and hatred towards his father? He would inflict that kind of pain on him. But the reality was that his father, who was coming to help, and he had flown from Houston, Texas to California and then boarded a train. And he had been corresponding with his son throughout the day. And Bill was going to pick him up at the train station. But I, I, you know, I can only guess. But I think in Bill's head, he thought, and he had said this to me many times, I will die before I go back to Houston. And I think he thought his father was coming to take him back to Texas to get him help because he didn't want to get help in his local community because he was buying into the stigma, right? So I don't think it was an, an, an attempt to punish his father or hurt him in any way. I think he just thought, wow, my life is over now. Now I'm going to go somewhere I don't want to go. And I'm going to have to have, you know, 
be in a, a psych- psychiatric facility. I'm going to have to get help. And I just think that was too much for him. Maybe had Bill started therapy 10 years ago, you know, and started to process all of this, it wouldn't have been so cumulative and, un, you know, overwhelming and unbearable. Where in the world do you find hope when you are in such a dark place? I think the first step is that we have to acknowledge that depression is a disease. When you realize it is not a choice and there is treatment and there is that possibility of returning to a place of joy, that is what brings about the hope. If you think, my gosh, my life is going to be like this forever, you do not have, you know, uh, there, you're eliminating any possibility of hope for a bright future where you can again experience joy. Right. And how was that process for you? Because your loss was just so crushing. Well, <laughs> you know, it's a long process. And I will tell all your listeners that grief is a journey. It's not a destination. And you have to be patient with yourself. And it keeps changing. And you keep going back and forth. But I think what's helped me, because initially, of course, I felt guilty. I felt it was my fault. I felt blame. And, and uh, you know, I fell into a depression myself. But over time, I realized, you know what? It was a disease and the disease took my husband's life. So I am not going to put that guilt and responsibility of his death on myself. Um, The fact that he didn't get proper treatment, that is something that I have such great passion about. And that's why I wrote Beneath the Surface, because I thought, you know, if we're going to abolish the stigma of mental illness, it needs to start young so that our teens can grow up having conversations about their mental health, and it's a normal part of life instead of, oh, wow, this is scary. I don't want to talk about it. Let's brush it under the rug. So that was the, that's the, my mission and my passion right now is education and starting young so that, they, so that our youth will have a different experience than we do, and they will not feel stigmatized, and they will reach out and get help when they need to. Well, speaking of starting young, in the back of the book, you have wonderful discussion discussion questions you can talk about with your parents or school. Because I think you've, you've, you've mentioned that you've gone to schools and they want to talk about this stuff, but they don't even know how to bring it up or where to start. Well, absolutely. And, and I am a, a credentialed health teacher, so I know what it's like to talk about topics where you were not trained, right? Mental health is pretty new. So the feedback I get from teachers and administrators and counselors is like, yeah, you say start the conversation, but we don't know how. We're scared of the topic. So what I did is at the end of the book, for each issue that I talk about, I wrote discussion questions. So instead of just saying, hey, people, we need to start the conversation, the question, the response I've been getting is, well, how do we do that? This is how you do it, whether you're the parent, the teacher, the counselor, you can sit down with your teenager or your young adult and say, okay, let's go over these questions and I want to get your feedback. And so it gives it gives the adult a tool to actually get into their loved one's brain. Um, and then I also use the story of my husband's suicide And what I do when I go to the schools is say, okay, I want you to write down all the warning signs and risk factors as my story unfolds. And they are so intrigued. So I make it an active learning tool and they're writing them down. And then after I tell my story and I make sure that I put 
all the warning signs and risk factors in the story. I, I will say, okay, let's discuss this. What were some of the warning signs? And they're raising their hands and they're actually even coming up with things that I didn't think of. So my goal is in writing the book is I want you, after you've read the book, to understand and be able to recognize warning signs and risk factors in your friends or your family members or any loved one. Yeah, and you list them. I'm just going to list some. These are t- some teen suicide warnings, disinterest in favorite extracurricular activities, substance abuse, behavioral problems such as reckless aggression or, excuse me, reckless, aggressive, or self-destructive behavior, isolation, or withdrawing from friends and family, changes in sleep patterns, changes in eating habits, neglecting personal appearance, lack of concentration or extreme fatigue, declining grades, feeling depressed or hopeless, and there's more. There is so much in this book, Christy, that is, it's, this is something that's a must-have. And as I mentioned in the beginning, this book really is for anyone who's struggling and anyone who, I mean, anybody in the world, I mean, we all need help. We all have people that we love. And like I said, I wish that um, I was able to, you know, have this when I was growing up because I just nagged my friend to quit smoking pot. But, you know, but like I said, I don't blame myself, but it's just unfortunate because I, but you also can't make people open up either. Right. I mean, but you can't, you know what you can't, Unless you're equipped with tools and information, right, you don't have a chance to help anybody. So you're right, you can't force it, but at least equip yourself with the knowledge so that you and your peers have a fighting chance. Oh, of course. So I think it's wonderful. All right, Christy, the book again, it's so good. Beneath the Surface, A Teen's Guide to Reaching Out When You or Your Friend Is in Crisis. Tell us all the ways we can find you and your wonderful work. Well, the best way to find the book is on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, Walmart. It's available in bookstores nationwide. And if you want to reach out to me personally, have me come to your school. If you want to read my blogs for the Huff Post, Elephant Journal, all of my information is on my website at thegriefgirl.com. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank you so much, Christy, for taking the time to come on Naturally Savvy. I encourage everyone to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also follow us on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at Lisa Davis MPH, at Andrea Donsky, at Naturally Savvy. Thank you so much for listening and stay well. Ring in the new year with a wonderfully clean house. It might be a mess after the holidays, but I have got the answer for you. Our wonderful sponsor, Nature Clean. They've been making chemical-free cleaning products and personal care products since 1963. Their ingredients are naturally derived from plants and minerals, and they are effective yet environmentally friendly. You get that wonderful clean that is good for the environment. They are approved by the USDA as being bio-based products, and all of their products are vegan and not tested on animals. For more information, visit them online at natureclean.ca.